In this episode of Vermont Ed Reads, I return to my old stomping grounds at Green Mountain Union High School. I'm talking with school counselor Ali Oswald about the realities of reaching and teaching students in poverty. Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty is also the title of a 2013 book by educator and reformer Paul Gorski. And we're going to use Gorski's text to to identify some concrete strategies to help us, as educators, move from wishful thinking to direct action. Our students need us, and we all know they're worth it. So let's roll up our sleeves and figure it out. Let's chat. Joining me, Ali. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jeannie. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a school counselor here at Green Mountain in uh, southern Vermont. I've been here for about 10, 12 years now. My husband's an educator in the building. My two sons come, come to school here, so this is really a family affair. Uh, we've been reading this book as part of a group uh, of teachers from our district as a study group. Uh, We meet once a month and discuss a chapter, and it's really helped me learn about uh, the wealth gap, to learn about how we think about students in poverty, how we, the stereotypes that get associated to families, uh, and really question my own practices. So it's been really great to be a part of that group. Well, you are the perfect guest then for me to, um, for us to dig into this book and think about... um, what action it calls to us in our Vermont schools. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me. Yep. Um, So Paul Gorski uh, begins this book um, by dispelling the myth that public education is a great equalizer. He says that's what what we want it to be, um, but that's not how it works out. And citing just countless research, um, he uh, begins with this. Students from poor families continue to be subject, on average, to what Jonathan Kozel has called the savage inequalities of schooling. The examples of these inequalities are numerous. Poor students are assigned disproportionately to the most inadequately funded schools with the largest class sizes and lowest paid teachers. They are more likely to be, I'm sorry, they are more likely than their wealthiest peers to be bullied and to attend school in poorly maintained buildings. They are denied access to the sorts of school resources and opportunities other children take for granted, such as dedicated school nurses, well-stocked school libraries, and engaging pedagogies. In fact, by these and almost every other possible measure, students from poor families, the ones most desperate to find truth in the great equalizer promise, appear to pay a great price for their poverty, even at school. Of course, these conditions are not the fault of teachers who often are blamed unjustly for their effects. In fact, teachers who teach at high poverty schools as well as an increasing number of their colleagues at all public schools too often are themselves denied access to adequate resources. I wondered, Ali, um, as a school counselor in a Vermont school, do you see this playing out in your experience that schools are being blamed for the effects of poverty over which they have no control? Yes. I mean, I think it's really interesting here in rural Vermont um, because there's not a whole lot of coordination of services between towns. And so schools become the community centers and they become the hub where people come to expect services and expect, you know, uh, food and uh, clothing and 
the schools are the one place where we can we have access, we can provide those services because we have access to families, we have access to students, and we do have the funding to do that. Um, I worry about our students in poverty here in Vermont, especially because housing is so hard to find. Long-term housing is so hard to find. Um, I think that students often have to leave schools and transition to different schools, and that really gets in the way of their learning. Um, it just seems to be present all the time. As I'm sitting with students in my office I, and, and I'm reading this book, I keep seeing evidence where poverty is getting in the way of students being successful in school. Things like, um, you know, when kids are being evicted from their home, that's definitely a stressor. Uh, when kids don't have access to food, that's definitely a stressor. Um, healthcare, I, I had a student tell me that their parents had to decide whether they were going to get their wisdom teeth pulled or if if they were going to do that, they were going to have to sell their car or dad was going to have to lose his second job because their family was making too much money to be on Dr. Dinosaur. So these things are present all the time in our Vermont schools. Right. And while teachers can um, be there for students in so many ways, we can't make sure kids get adequate health care. Yeah. And I think that's what's great about this book is that it allows us to understand sort of the full spectrum of how these injustices sort of reoccur both in and out of school for families. Um, and our job as taking care of kids, like we just have to be aware that these things are at play. And the, at least we can't perpetuate these stereotypes and these biases that we have. And we work to serve kids and remove these obstacles and remove these barriers. Yeah, so let's get into that. Yeah. Then. Um, so uh, the mission of Gorski's book is really to expand our capacity to teach for class equity, as he says. Um, and he starts uh, with a, a really awesome uh, quote. I, I thought I'd ask if you could read it. In my book, it's on page five. Uh, he writes... I also wrote it because I believe in the transformative power of educators, perhaps not always as the frontline people in the struggle to end global poverty, at least not on our own, but as people committed enough to walk into classrooms and schools full of students, dedicated to do the right thing by each of them despite all the challenges. We see you, teachers. Mm -hmm. We know that you want to do right by kids. And we just want to honor you at the very start of this, even as we're digging into things we might do differently or ask you to look at differently. We see you and your vision to um, be there for kids, to help every kid learn. Schools are full of educators who care and want nothing but the best for these kids, despite what kids actually think, their teachers think about them. I have yet to meet educators who don't want the best for these kids. And so I really believe in the power of educators coming together and understanding these issues deeply and working towards solutions. Yeah. And I have yet to meet an educator who doesn't work their butt off for kids, mm -hmm. who doesn't work so super hard. And so we just want to honor you from the beginning. Um, and I think Gorski does that too. He sees you and, and knows uh, that you work hard and that you love kids. And so... Here we go. Let's see what he's asking us to think about. Um, Gorski really begins this book with definitions. Uh, he defines poverty and working class and middle class. He goes through all these different terms. And um, I was really struck by this. I think we throw around terms like poverty and middle class 
right? And um, without really thinking about what they mean. And there are always these studies out for years now in the paper that say most people see themselves as middle class, even if they aren't. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like we all sort of put ourselves in that middle class bucket. So I found it really interesting uh, that um, Gorski starts with definitions and what he means in this book in order to be more precise. Yeah, to really clarify who, who is being who the injustices are happening to and how it's been designed and framed in the last, you know, 30 years in terms of politics. I think that really plays into uh, how we fund things and how we make decisions about policies, all of those things. Language is important. He talks about how important language is in this text and framing the language. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to that more because he talks about strengths-based a strengths-based approach mm-hmm. to language, too. Um, I just found this so interesting because um, it's really easy to be unclear, and that causes like obfuscation, right? If we're unclear, then what are we really talking about? And mm-hmm. so it's really nice that he starts this book with some real clarity about what he means when he says working class, middle class. He talks about the owning class. He talks about wealth in ways that are different mm-hmm. than I've seen in other places. So um, I, I just appreciated his frankness about that. Can I point out some statistics? Yes, please. Is that okay? Yes. Um, I'm going to turn to page 41 in my copy. Of record, 47 million people in the United States live in poverty. About 15% of the population. Actually, that figure is based on that government standard for poverty line income we explored earlier, which... For example, 24,600 for a family of four. Another 30 million are living just above the poverty line in constant danger of dipping below it. That's 77 million people at or near the poverty line in the United States alone. I just think it's really important to know that the poverty line in the United States is $24,600 for a family of four. And I don't know about you, but my family of four is struggling to get by on, on quite a bit more than that. And so I'm wondering why these numbers are these numbers. Who benefits from the numbers being this low? And the fact that we have another 30 million people living just above that line and are constantly in danger. He talks about us being you know, an emergency um, visit away from poverty. I don't know many educators living a lush life either, right? right? (laughs) On their salaries, and yet we are, as educators, firmly in the middle class. Even if we weren't um, middle class growing up, Mm -hmm. we're middle class now by virtue of being educators. And yet most educators I know have to take second jobs or think about how to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how poverty... um, So in public schools... We say that everybody has equal access to things, right? But when we talk about wealth, kids actually don't have equal access, right? So every summer program that my kids are signing up for costs money, right? And I'm fortunately in a place and I have family who can help pay for those things. But my kids are learning math this summer at camps. So of course they're gonna come in better prepared next year. Other kids don't have access to those kind of camps. 
I think VSAC in our state does a great job of trying to reach out and provide services for kids who are first generation and who fall on this poverty line. But like I just said, that 24600 annual income, if that's our basis, then we're missing out on a whole lot of kids who need some extra supports. Absolutely. In that way that just like um, some families are just missing out on Dr. Dinosaur. You know, Allie, this isn't in the book, but it makes me think about lately the news has been full of talk about how the economy is so strong. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, every time Marketplace comes on NPR, I turn it off because I'm a little ticked off that our uh, measure of economic success is all racked up in the owning class, as mm-hmm. Gorski would refer to them, and how much they've traded stocks, mm-hmm. right? Like if our measure is only in the Dow, right? I want us to me- uh, I want us to measure economic progress by how many children are living in with in poverty. I want to know the number of kids who went without a meal mm-hmm. on an average day as a measure of economic success. I want to know. Uh, how many families had to make really tough choices between medicine and food? Mm-hmm. Like, I want our measures of economic success to not be wrapped up in the owning class, but to be wrapped up in the working poor. Mm-hmm. And the number of, uh, what is it, jobs that are available? I keep hearing that that number is so low right now. And it's because people are working two or three jobs to get by. That's not the measure of how successful we're doing. And quite frankly, Uh, We're not taking good care of our children right now. We need to invest money in feeding our kids, in providing preschool education for our kids. And I don't, we're here to talk about a book. I'm not going to go on a political rant, but this book helps me see these small injustices that happen every day, right? Kids can't, um, our food service people do a great job getting people um, access to food here on campus. But the fact that a family has to fill out a form to get access to free food, why aren't we just feeding every kid? Why do they have to, he talks about uh, showing their poverty or, um, I forget the word he uses now, but I'll see if I can find it. But we're asking kids to like present their poverty for food. Let, let's just feed everybody. What's the harm in that? And how much would that really cost us? I'm sure that we can find money to feed kids in schools, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like demonstrating your poverty. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time. And I, I actually think that Gorski's point is that we have to act up in society if we want equitable conditions in schools. And we'll talk about that as we begin to delve in to the equity uh, literacy framework um, that Gorski outlines. And let's just, I really want to spend some time on this. Let's do a pair reading, Allie, and I'll read one and you read two, et cetera, because there are four abilities of equity literacy. So the first ability is the ability to recognize both subtle and not so subtle biases and inequities in classroom dynamics school cultures and policies, and the broader society, and how these biases and inequities affect students and their families. Mm-hmm. So it's recognizing that these small injustices that are happening. Yes. What's number two? Uh, it's about responding. Ability to respond to biases and inequities in the immediate term. 
So he says it's having the skill and will to call it out when you see it happening in schools. Number three is the ability to redress biases and inequities in the longer term so they do not continue to crop up in classrooms and schools. So not only do we have to recognize them and respond right in our classroom in the moment, we gotta, we gotta figure out what's causing them. Right, understand where it's coming from and change the system, like consciously find solutions that solve the problem and not further perpetuate the inequities. And number four? Number four is the ability to create and sustain a bias-free and equitable learning environment. Doesn't that sound amazing? It sounds amazing. (laughs) It sounds aspirational. It does. So I think that um, you and I both saw Paul Gorski speak at a school reform initiative fall meeting. And I'm not sure if it was the same one, but this is reminding me of a story that you and I uh, both love from one of those fall meetings. And the story was this. Um, There's a person uh, standing by a river, and they start Mm. seeing these babies coming down the river. First one baby, and so they pull the baby out of the water. And then another baby floats down the river, and they pull that baby out of the water. And then another baby, and they pull that baby out of the water. And the person with them goes running off, and they say, wait, wait, where are you going? There are all of these babies right? And, and the person that runs off says, I'm going to find out how come these babies are getting into the river in the first place. Mm-hmm. And in a way, number three, redress biases and inequities in the long term is about figuring out why the babies are in the river in the first place. And I know that story resonated for you mm-hmm. because I know you as a school counselor feel like you're yanking babies out of the river. I do. I do. I feel so helpless in this current system to be able to provide what children need. Um, Nothing is more frustrating in my job than, um, you know, I get to know kids and be with kids through really tough times. And I feel like that's something that I do really well. And I'm proud of the fact that I can sit with kids in their grief and in their struggles. But it it would be so satisfying to find ways to help them not suffer, feel like they're suffering so much, to find solutions so that they um, aren't ashamed of their lives, so that they feel empowered to become these amazing people that they are. You know, I want them to see that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be able to unpack the equity mm-hmm. literacy framework, and I wondered if you would play along with me. And I chose an example that's a little easier than poverty, mm-hmm. um, that I think is a little clearer. So I'm going to lay out a situation, a scenario, if you will, and let's see if we can um, figure out what it would look like to use these four abilities to get underneath of it. Okay. So here's my scenario. And it comes from real life. This is not made up. Uh-oh. When I was a librarian here at Green Mountain, I heard, and this is actually not unique to Green Mountain, actually. I would suggest almost every school in Vermont probably has the same issue and across the country. I would often hear kids, female kids, girls, talk about the dress code. They were really annoyed by the dress code. And um, I would hear some girls say, oh, well, if you're skinny, you can get away with dress code violations. But if you've got a little flesh on you, you can't. Or I would hear none of the boys ever get called down for dress code violations. And if they do, they just have to turn their shirt inside out because it has something on it. 
And so I would, I would guess that if we looked at dress code violation data in almost any school at Vermont, it is disproportionately affecting girls. Mm-hmm. So if we go through this framework, the ability to recognize both subtle and not so subtle bias, mm-hmm. what do we see? Yeah. So I think we see, uh, we see, you know, girls in half tops who are getting called down uh, because they're a distraction to other people, right? They're a distraction to boys or other adults in the room. And we're not really, so the first recognition is that that's sort of unjust, right? Like, she's not responsible for the distractions that are happening in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah, and and so when my son was in middle school, many years ago now, um, he, his friends, a lot of his, the boys in his class, tried to get called out for dress code violations and couldn't, right? Meanwhile, girls were shopping at the stores available to them, Mm -hmm. buying the clothes available to them, and they couldn't wear them to school. In order to meet the dress code violations at his middle school, those girls had to go buy clothes at like old lady shops, Mm -hmm. shops that I would (laughs) shop at, right? Not fashionable teenage wear, right? So it was almost impossible sometimes, especially the short requirement that the shorts had to be longer than your fingertips. Pity that poor tall girl with the long arms Mm -hmm. and the long legs, right? she always ended up in the office for a dress code violation. And these were often families who had money to go buy clothes. Imagine how challenging it is if your wardrobe is limited because of that, uh, the income of your family. And I would say that this is, that there's also an unjust piece to this about kids in poverty because I often see uh, the kids who are well off or who are popular or well put together wearing real skimpy stuff and nobody calls them out where it's a red flag if um, one of the kids who often gets in trouble who might be a little bit lar- on the larger size as uh, and uh, who, who just sort of like pops their head who is more noticeable as a student on somebody's radar uh, gets called out more often f- for it than the kids who are well behaved in our school and I think that that's an unjust that's unjust as well yeah I call that the red sports car having been Mm -hmm. the mother of a red sports car the the red sports car gets more speeding tickets Mm -hmm. right because it's more visible and we do have those kids who stand out who get in trouble because then they become have a reputation for Mm -hmm. getting in trouble and so we unjustly call them out for wearing the same thing that somebody else is wearing so there's all sorts of ways we can recognize both subtle and not so subtle bias about who's getting called out. And I would say just the disproportionate number of girls mm-hmm. that get called out for dress code violations should should be a flashing red light that says something's wrong with our policy if only girls are getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Right? So then if we move on to step two, the ability to respond to biases and inequities in the immediate term as they crop up in classrooms and schools. This is the hard part, Jeannie. This is where I'm struggling to find the courage to do this. It's in those everyday moments when we're talking as teachers about, um, well, those parents just don't care. You know, they won't take time to come meet and talk about their kid. Or um, there's just, I think we all know these moments when they happen where they're cringeworthy and I let them slide. 
And this is about not letting them slide. It's about having the skill to say, actually, parents of students in poverty care just as much about their kids' futures as kids from their wealthier peers. Uh, and and having the skill and will to call it out. Yeah. Well, so I also didn't take a very courageous uh, tack, and now that I'm no longer employed by a school, I can honestly say that my response to what I deemed as sexist dress codes was just to ignore kids' clothing. Like, I didn't call. I never once reported a kid for a dress code violation because I felt like the policy was not worthy of being... Um, implemented. Mm-hmm. So not a very courageous move, uh, not really a response that changed anything, but that was my response. Mm-hmm. So now if I could go back and have a do-over, I might respond differently. I might actually seek out and get a group of girls to go with me to the principal's office and say, hey, let's have a look at this dress code. Let's talk about it. And really get to the roots of what the problem is. Who's affected? How are they affected? Like, what is the problem? I feel like in education, so often we go in thinking, we making all kinds of assumptions about what's at play and putting a Band-Aid on things instead of really deeply looking at and figuring out what the problem is and then practical solutions to that problem. Well, and this is an example, I think, where Band-Aids are prevalent because mm-hmm. I remember a staff meeting here at Green Mountain Uh, about the dress code, right? And one of the things that I think we can all agree on is that not one of us wants our young women to be preyed upon by predators outside of this building. Like, we're genuinely concerned for their safety. And so we want them to dress appropriately so they don't draw that kind of attention to themselves and that they don't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. That's a legitimate concern for kids that we don't want them to get hurt. But unfortunately, what we're demonizing is girls' bodies instead of a culture that preys on young women. Mm -hmm. And that's really problematic when we make girls feel like their bodies are shameful or should be hidden when the real problem is elsewhere. Yep. Um, And so I remember having that conversation. I remember feeling like, well, obviously I don't want these girls to be assaulted I also want them to feel free in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And feel good about themselves. Yes. And powerful, right? And powerful. And so that gets us to that next ability, the ability to redress bias and inequities in the longer term. This is where I feel like activism about rape culture and mm. calling out that women are not responsible if men and boys are distracted by their bodies. That women have a right to their own bodies, that their bodies are their own Men too, by the way. Your bodies are your own too. (laughs) Yes. And so that gets to that. This is where I think Gorski is asking us really to step out beyond what's in our control in our classrooms and schools and address larger societal problems because they show up so often in our schools, right? So rape Mm -hmm. culture shows up in schools, even if it doesn't originate in schools. Schools, right. Yeah. It's complicated. He asks us in a way to, to be political, to mm-hmm. be engaged, to be advocates for young people beyond um, beyond our schools. Yeah, and um, he does this in, a, in... I wanted to talk about this at the end, but now might be a good time to talk about it. Um, I'm going to turn to page 87. As we strengthen our equity literacy, we begin to see how these disparities are the result of structural disadvantages. 
and he talks about livable wage jobs with benefits, health care, adequate and healthy food, stable, affordable quality housing, healthy living and work in, working environments, recreation and fitness options, community and social services, quality child care, cognitive enrichment resources, and a validating and bias-free society. So if what we're doing is that's trying... A, that's a tall order. <laughs> we can do it, Jeannie. I know we can. But when we're talking about creating and sustainable, creating and sustaining equitable ways of, uh, of living and creating educational opportunities for kids that are free of bias, he's really talking about these things, these things that are outside of our realm of control. And so it is bigger than us, and we have a responsibility. I love how he started with, as we strengthen our, our equity literacy skills, this idea that this is a muscle, that this, these four steps, recognize, respond, redress, create, and sustain, feel like a lot. Mm -hmm. But we can start just with recognizing, and then we can recognize and respond, right? And we can slowly build up this muscle uh, like we would a muscle at the gym, right? We can slowly practice this until we become stronger and stronger. And it starts with just being able to see uh, the inequities that are present for our students. So I'm going to tell you a story about fall meeting this year. So I was with, I was at the school reform initiatives fall meeting. I was facilitating a small group and it was uh, educators who from across the country at all levels who were really interested in, in, in this particular conversation, talking about race and inequities around race. And uh, we met and we were all on the same page. And um, he, Paul Gorski has a second book that's called Case Studies on Diversity and Social Justice Education uh, by Paul Gorski and Seema Pothini. Um, and in this book, they outline actual case scenarios from school around bias and inequities. And with that group, we started reading three of these. We sat in different groups. We read three and sort of processed, what, we, what would you do in this scenario? One was about a student uh, with a physical disability and a field trip and getting access to the learning that other kids were doing on that field trip when a state park was not allowing a student to go on a particular trail. And so we were practicing that muscle, and the when we were debriefing that, people in the room were like, oh my god, I thought I knew. Like, just because I believe in justice doesn't mean I can call it out and, and change it, you know? Like, I don't... It's so confusing, it's so murky. What's the right thing to do in the moment? And then how do I respond? I have to take care of this kid who doesn't have access. I have to deal with the parents. Like there's so many layers to this that I think it is really good to find a group of people and practice these things with and keep talking about and thinking about it because it, there's no simple solution. This just makes me think about how, as educators, we have to constantly be learners. Mm. So many of our schools right now are um, sort of engaged in some sort of learning around trauma-informed practice, or um, you know, we're constantly we're doing work on proficiency. We have to constantly be learners. Our students are changing, but this is just another way in which we have to keep learning, mm -hmm. keep getting better. For but the, we can. We can get better. And it's for the benefit of our kids. I mean, we want to do better. We don't want to hold these stereotypes in our brains and in our hearts, right? We want, the, we want to 
educators want kids to be successful. So it's worth it if we can start to, to explore sort of all these things that we hold to be truths in ourselves. And I think some uh, there's another way in which we can have our students help us with this work too. Christy Nold is doing amazing work where she has kids um, recognizing bias into her classroom, in the books they read. Uh, there's a school library in Ottaquichi which is engaging students in finding, doing an audit of the library collection to find bias and redress bias, right? And so I think we, our students can be our partners in this work, but also we need to be doing this work. So besides this, as if these four abilities weren't enough, Gorski also outlines, um, as if these four abilities aren't enough, Gorski also outlines uh, 10 principles uh, of equity literacy um, that all seem really important. We don't have time to talk about all 10, but I wondered if you wanted to talk about one that is especially meaningful to you and your work. Yes. Um, I think I'd like to talk about number five. What we believe about people experiencing poverty informs how we teach, interact with, and advocate or fail to advocate for them. One of the truths that he explores over and over in this book is that the most powerful change a teacher can make or the most powerful learning that we can have is this recognition that we hold stereotypes about people of poverty. We have those, and we need to challenge those. We need to look at those and understand them so that we can challenge them. Because the biggest shift that can happen for educators is if we do this. If we, if, if we believe in students experiencing poverty and have high expectations for them and believe in their power, then we can we can help them be successful. And he talks about no amount of professional development, no you know, books or number of pencils you provide is a substitute for shifting your beliefs about students in poverty. Yeah. It's like starting with your heart mm -hmm. before you move to your head. I've been thinking a lot about how in education we try to shift practice without shifting beliefs. So this is really important. What we believe in our hearts shows up in our bodies, in our heads, in our brains, right? Comes out of our mouth. Right. And so we have to believe that all students can learn. We have to believe that all students are doing their best. Yep. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. That really resonates for me. I um, thought um, number eight, these all stand out for me. But um, number eight, I think, goes ties in really, these all tie in together, too. Um, in my book, it says, equitable educators adopt a resiliency rather than a deficit view of low-income students and families. Equity literate educators recognize and draw upon the resiliencies and other funds of knowledge accumulated by poor and working class individuals and communities and reject deficit views that focus on fixing disenfranchised students, disenfranchised students rather than fixing the things that disenfranchise students. And so for me, um, this is all about shifting my language from a deficit-based uh, vocabulary to a strengths-based vocabulary, and that is constant work. Um, I think I used to use words like, um, uh, I think I used to refer to students in ways that I thought was really sensitive to them, but actually was further marginalizing them. Mm. 
right? That, um, and so I try to change my language to be more strengths-based, and that ties in with what I believe, mm -hmm. right? It helps me more adequately express what I believe. It also shifts what I believe when I use different language. And so the title of this book is a perfect example. For years, we've heard about the achievement gap. Kids of color are not achieving at the same level as white kids. Kids in poverty are not achieving at the same level. When we make it a call it an achievement gap, then we're we're blaming the kids mm -hmm. or their families. When we call it an opportunity gap, the implications of having different opportunities, a gap in opportunities if you're poor, turns that on its head. Right. It completely shifts your thinking when you change the language and you frame it a different way. Yes. He does that with the term generational poverty. We have this term generational poverty that we often use, and he changes it to generational injustice. So generations of people having their lands taken away, having their rights stripped, not allowing access to purchasing things, purchasing land, owning land. Um, it, it shift, how you talk about things matters. Do you yeah. mind if I find that place in the book? Go ahead. I would love for you to share that. I think words do matter. Generational poverty makes it sound like we're passing poverty down, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is your inheritance. I was poor, so now you're poor. Generational injustice points to what's really happened, that systems have made it impossible for certain groups of people to um, accumulate wealth. So generational poverty always seemed to me to be a deficit suggestion. The idea that poverty as a result of set of cultures, behaviors, and attitudes reproduced in families experiencing poverty and passed down from generation to generation. What if, instead of talking about generational poverty, we talked about generational injustice? How would it change the way we defined, understood, responded to, and redressed the problem? Suddenly, we're not looking at poverty as a personal or cultural failure, focusing on how deficit mindsets are passed from generation to generation, but instead examining how policies, practices, and institutions marginalize generation after generation of some families and communities. Thank you for sharing that. That really um, speaks to me about a question that I, uh, you know I'm very fond of questions. <laughs> um, a question that I often, that sits in my toolkit um, for equity is this question of, especially around policy, um, is, is this policy trying to fix people? Because if the answer is yes, it's likely an inequitable or an inadequate policy. Right? Mm. Is this program trying to fix people? If we're trying to fix people, we're part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. What we need to do is fix systems. Mm. And as long as we're focused on fixing people, we're avoiding or ignoring the real problem, which is systemic inequities, systemic um, biases that create the disenfranchisement, that create the inequities mm -hmm. that show up. And so that, that, that really, um, uh, shines up my question for me and makes me think about it more, about how that question can be used as we're designing policy or procedures in schools. He also says, and I agree with him when he says that students know. <laughs> students know if you're pitying them. They know if it's a Band-Aid. They know if it's um, really getting to the root of the problem or if it's unjust. If you, are, if you wonder about that, 
if you just ask kids, like, what's going on? They'll tell you. Nobody wants to be fixed. <laughs> don't well, tell me I'm broken. Don't, you know, don't, don't, yeah. Don't pity me. Don't, like, try to change me. Change the systems mm-hmm. that create the inequities that make it hard for me. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Gorski spends a whole chapter dismantling the, the myths of the culture of poverty. And, mm-hmm. and really addressing those stereotypes that are common stereotypes of families in poverty and that section in particular you and I that's also posted as an article online um, that section that dispels common stereotypes about poor families Um, that's a really powerful section you and I have used that in Mm -hmm. um, a collaborative practices course we co-facilitate to help people um, look at bias that they've unconsciously held and um, and we found that to be really painful in a lot of cases for for our teachers who are like, oh shoot, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And, and um, painful but fruitful that teachers are really having to scrutinize their own beliefs and, in ways that can be really uncomfortable. Um, I wondered if you wanted to talk about a particular stereotype that stands out for you from that section. I actually am reluctant to read any of these stereotypes because I think they perpetuate, they further perpetuate the story. And what I got out of this chapter is sort of understanding where stereotypes come from, um, that there's an inside group and an outside group, and often stereotypes come from an outside group, (laughs) and they don't come from the people who are experiencing those things. And all you need is a hint of truth for people to buy into it. And so I'm going to read this part at the top of page 72. We tend to require less evidence and less accurate evidence to convince us of the legitimacy of a stereotype about a group to which we do not belong than we require to convince us of a stereotype about a group to which we do belong. (laughs) Social psychologists have referred to this phenomenon as in-group bias. So it's who gets to make the, who gets to call the shots, who gets to decide. Right. It's about power. It's about power, and it's less about um, what's true and what's not true. Uh, When you hear Paul Gorski speak, he has this quiz that he makes you take. And so those questions are sort of jaw-dropping about, um, I even think he lists them in here, about the things that we believe to be true. He calls on us again and again to, to evaluate those things we believe to be true, and he throws a ton of research at us. This book has so many parenthetical citations that it exhausts me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one, that, um, the one that stopped me in my tracks when I first read it and that I still struggle with is this idea about linguistic deficiency. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the reason is that um, I grew up working poor, And my family, to this day, does not speak with um, standard American English uh, grammar and syntax, right? They say words that embarrass me, Um, ain't probably being the least embarrassing of them, but they, um, the way they talk is not the way that I talk. And um, what I love about uh, Gorski is that he cites so much research that just had made me have to rethink my thinking about that. So he says, linguists, linguists roundly reject the superior-inferior dichotomy 
some call it standard um, language ideology in reference to the presumptuous and familiar term standard English. According to Catherine Woolard and Bambi Shifflin, moral indignation over non-standard forms of language derives from ideological associations of the standard with the qualities valued within the culture, such as clarity or truthfulness. In fact, since at least the early 1970s, linguists have bemoaned the ways in which students are taught to misunderstand the nature of language, including the false dichotomy of correct proper and incorrect improper language varieties. In linguistic reality, all variations of a language and all dialects from what some people call Black English vernacular to the Appalachian English spoken by my grandma are highly structured with their own sets of grammatical rules. And so this notion that we have that when kids uh, speak in their home vernacular, they're less intelligent, that shows up for me. Like I, I hold that bias and I have to work hard against it. And it's about, I think as educators, we're in a unique position too, because it's not to say uh, this is the only way to do it. We can say when you are writing a resume, when you are applying for a job, when you're writing an email to your boss, this is the way communication happens. In other circles and other places, this is also powerful language and it's still valued. Yeah. Yes. You said that so well. (laughs) Um, so folks, I'm going to, I'm going to pull us back to, um, a more hopeful place because Gorski asks us to do all this hard work to look at ourselves really closely and the biases we hold and to work on recognizing bias in action and redressing it. And, you know, he's really asking us to do a lot and it's hard work, but he also has this section, um, where he points out strategies that research has shown to be effective for children um, living in poverty. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to that because there's some that. great stuff in there. Um, there's a great uh, little instructional strategies that work list, and then he digs into them a little further. So the equity educator has the knowledge, skills, and will to. Number one, consider data humbly, responsibly, and collaboratively. Two, prioritize literacy instruction across the curriculum. Three, promote literacy enjoyment. Four, have and communicate high expectations. Five, adopt higher order, student-centered, rigorous pedagogies. Six, teach critical literacy. Seven, teach about poverty, economic injustice, and class bias. Eight, analyze learning materials for class and other bias. Nine, make curricula relevant to students experiencing poverty. 10, incorporate music, art, and theater across the curriculum. And 11, incorporate movement and exercise into learning. These strategies just sound like good teaching, he says. <laughs> and they are. For me, I, of course, adore promote literacy enjoyment. I hate when reading is turned into a chore. Mm-hmm. I want it to be fun. And as a librarian, it was really important to me that I had books that kids could enjoy 
that they felt drawn to, that they, um, uh, I wanted kids to love the books that they took home, right? Like to come to me and say, oh my gosh, I love this so much. And that was like my best reward. And that combines with um, making curricula relevant to the lives of our students. And so it's really important to me that um, whether in classrooms or in libraries, that kids be able to see themselves in books. That means having uh, LGBTQ characters in books. Mm -hmm. That means having um, kids of color in books, kids who are refugees in our stories, right? That, um, that we have stories about uh, kids living in poverty where it's not just uh, demoralizing, story. right? Mm -hmm. We don't have a single story of that, exactly. Um, that we have opportunities for kids to see all different kinds of people like themselves and not in literature and in the curriculum is super important to me. And um, I'll give a little shout out to a book I'm in love with right now. Anne Braden's The Benefits of Being an Octopus is a great opportunity for kids to see the strength and resilience in um, a character, Zoe, who's experiencing poverty and, um, and some um, abuse in her life. What rings true for you out of this list? Well, I love the last two about um, incorporating music, art, and theater across curriculum and, and incorporate movement and exercise into learning. I think when kids are able to be physical on their bodies that the learning sticks with them. But I also want to draw attention to number one because we can do this easily. <laughs> and I... And I and I want to stress how important this is to educational leaders that we take time to do this. Consider data humbly, responsibly, and collaboratively. Data doesn't have meaning until we look at it together and make meaning together. And then create a vision for how we want things to be. And I can't do that by myself as a school counselor. You can't do that on your own as a librarian. Um, we have to do this collectively. I think that you're absolutely right about that, Allie, that we need to work together in community to look at data and figure out what the biases are and how to redress them. And so I would recommend to um, administrators and teachers and leaders who are interested in doing this work, the book Solving Disproportionality and Achieving Equity, A Leader's Guide to Using Data to Change Hearts and Minds by Edward uh, Fergus. Um, this book was recommended to me by Jillian at School Reform Initiative, and while I haven't had a chance to put it into action yet, I have a copy, and it's just like this amazing opportunity to dig deep in data, which you're right, doesn't have meaning until we start to make sense of it um, and use it for the good of our students. Um, I also love that you call forth the same thing that um, Gorski calls forth at the end of his book, which is a focus on relationships, right? That we need each other to do this important work. And Gorski says, every practical strategy in the world will not work if we treat poor and working class youth or their families, even in the most implicit ways, as though they are broken or some lesser other. Remember, as as we learned earlier, that research has shown that who or what we choose to blame for poverty guides the policies and practices we are willing to implement. In other words, what we believe about low-income students, how we relate to them, is just as important as how we teach them. In fact, it plays a considerable role in determining how we teach them. 
And this quote really reminded me of you because having known you and worked with you for such a long time, I know that you have this gift for seeing students, really seeing them. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about what that means to you. Oh, that's really nice, Jeannie. Um, uh, I think what that means to me, and in my own personal work that I do, I'm part of a courage and renewal cohort. And during that work, what I've realized is that my I'm only as I'm only good at my job when I can show up as my full self, right? And um, when I begin to be honest about who I am with, you know, everything that I'm awesome at and also everything that I'm not so awesome at, um, if I can just be fully available for kids, I'm, uh, it's, it's better for them. I think fully seeing kids is creating spaces where they too can be their honest self and they don't have to deal with judgment, they don't have to deal with shame, that they can be a mess because <laughs> we're all kind of a mess. Um, and I think the more spaces we can create, not just for kids, but for people to be their full selves, the, the better aligned we'll be as a society about like what matters to us and we can sort of follow our hearts and trust um, trust the choices that we're making and feel powerful about changes that we need to make. Just even in my own personal stuff, I, I think we all get caught up in our insecurities and feel like, oh, I'll never be able to do these things. And when we create spaces for people to explore their full selves, they start to recognize that they're, they have a lot of power. They have a lot of skills and they're really beautiful and they can make changes and make things happen for themselves. I think that the special thing that you do, Allie, is you, by helping kids feel fully seen, they also really trust you. Mm. And so they can, so many of the ways in which kids, especially kids um, experiencing poverty, show up in schools is to hide. Mm -hmm. And you help them realize they don't have to hide themselves. That but, they can come clean about what they need or what's going wrong in their lives. But can I tell you, it's sort of terrifying too, right, to hold this trust in a system that doesn't necessarily work for them, right? In the system that sort of feels unjust. Like I have to talk to girls about their dress code issues and I have to, you know, tell kids that college is really important, right? Like there are all these scripts that I have as part of being in an edu education system that I worry about having that, it feels like a huge responsibility to hold that trust. And so this work around Equity literacy is really good for me to make sure that the stories that I'm, the scripts that I'm using are not, um, are not holding kids back, are not further perpetuating these stereotypes. Yeah, you're reminding me that as educators in buildings, we really have to uh, have a two-pronged <laughs> approach, right? We, mm -hmm. Like we do need to play by the rules of the school, mm -hmm. even as we may be uh, behind the scenes for kids, we may be talking to administrators and to other teachers and to school boards about why those rules need to change. Yeah. That we do need to uphold policies even as we're advocating uh, for changes in them. I think that's where people in, in the world of equi equity in schools sometimes get 
sort of chewed up a little bit is in that in the place of those two things sort of ground up in the wheels of of holding and creating space and upholding the principles that are in the foundations of education it's exhausting work it is but it's so worthwhile right when you get to see students being successful in opportunities that they have Access and opportunities, those are what we need to focus on for kids. That's what Paul Gorski argues about. Access and opportunities. Yeah. Teachers, take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. We know you're doing so much. We hope you're uh, doing a little self-care as well because it's a lot. As Allie said, it's easy to get ground up in the wheels Mm -hmm. of this work. Um, There is so much more to this book. It's a thin little book, but... There is so much more that we haven't discussed because it's such a rich resource, um, just chock full of, of profound thinking and um, references to research. I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to call attention to. I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I've had a lovely conversation with you, Jeannie. I think we covered a lot of ground. Well, I enjoyed listening to you, Allie. Uh, You have so many great insights. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about this really important book. Yeah, thanks, Jeannie, for having me. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont educators and students are reading. Thank you to Ali Oswald for appearing on the show and talking with me about reaching and teaching students in poverty. If you're looking for a copy of Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty, check your local library. A big shout out to Audrey Holman, our amazing audio engineer. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests, and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.parentinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at VTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. I can't imagine people want to listen to this. (laughs) Hi. Sorry. (laughs) How am I supposed to respond to that? Um...